so there's this statement that Paul makes in a letter that we call the Philippians, or call Philippians, that I remember reading it for the first time 20 years ago and actually having conversation with a couple mentors in my life, and it was this super alarming text. And ironically, 20 years later for me, it's among the most encouraging texts in the whole text. And I think it, I think it serves as a jumping off point for where we've been in this series. So if you've not been with us, or if you know, life is so busy, you haven't thought about it since last weekend or whatever, we're in this series called Eternity Is Now. And we started by asking this question, what is eternal life? What is salvation? And really what we're trying to do is like, what, what was Jesus trying to create? And I think what that's done is create the occasion to begin to go, Maybe every once in a while we need to stop and make sure that, that what we've created and what Jesus sought to create are the same thing. And I'm not convinced that we can do that perfectly, but I do think uh, there's this appropriate time to analyze the degrees to which Christianity is and is not similar to what Jesus was all about. And so what we did in that first week was had some honest conversation about the reality that while eternal life certainly includes something beyond death, and there's room for that in the text, The vast majority of what the text has to say when it comes to things like eternal life and salvation, which was this very political word, it was really concerned with the present, like this moment, this moment now, this moment with God now. And then last week we asked this question of, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? And again, not suggesting that I've got the corner on the market or we've got the corner on the market or even that whatever definition we form in this season will be the final definition we carry with us. But again, it's a way of going, how important is it that actually doing what Jesus said and becoming who Jesus said to become, how important is that to the definition? I was listening to an old teaching from Dallas Willard just this week and he spoke, I've never heard him speak to why he prefers the word apprentice and what he said in there was that that an apprentice, that idea captures both the intellectual component, the book component, as well as the fact that you're actually expected to do what your teacher or leader does. And thus, his argument is Jesus was looking not not for believers, but but followers. And so where where this verse picks up, and maybe we'll just jump into it in Philippians, I I think complements all of this in in the sense that there's this ongoing work. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved... And let me just stop at that word beloved, because for me, uh, this is this reminder, and if you've been with us for a while, you, you may remember that we've, we've nuanced before that, that there's these two overlapping narratives in the text. One is what theologians call creation theology, and one is what crea- theologians call salvation theology. And salvation theology, it, it's the theology that we generally think of when we think of Christianity. It's the theology that is stereotyped on late night TV and televangelists. It's the theology that really emphasizes that this God loves us and that we can do things in this life to to create separation between ourselves and and God, that that Jesus was trying to win a victory over evil that would kind of close that gap. Salvation theology is about the God who wants wants you to be reconciled to him. And it's very much there. But where we get ourselves in trouble is when we start reading creation theology without knowing that we've done that. Because Creation theology, which has nothing to do with the number of days it took God to create the world, it has everything to do with the fact that God is, is, is the genius behind all of this, and different things have different domains, and they all have value, and the human domain has this unique responsibility for character and management. Creation theology is about a God who has someone for you to be. I think of it like, like the NFL draft. You know, it's one thing to, to get drafted onto the team, but whether you're a first-round pick or a seventh-round pick, there's still work to do. 
You're on the team, but, but, but you've got to become the player that was drafted, which is an imperfect analogy because salvation theology says you're in. That's not of concern, but now God has a job for you. It's maybe more like the boss talking to the employee or the parent, a child. That you're loved and valued isn't what's at stake. What's at stake is will you play the role? Will you sing the song that God has for you? So Paul starts, therefore, my beloved. And part of where we get ourselves in trouble, one more thought on this, when we read and we go, man, this God is angry. Because he's speaking to a people that, as far as he's concerned, are already in. And what he's saying to them is, you're not doing your job of justice and righteousness in the world. So, therefore, my beloved, as you, just as you have obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, in the Western evangelical sense, this verse makes no sense because work seems completely opposed to grace. And I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. And here's why I love this verse. Because 20 years into following Jesus, many of the problems that I thought I would solve by praying a prayer, which I did, aren't solved. I still struggle with fear. I still struggle with anger. There's still times, oftentimes it feels like more often than not, when I fail to be the, the character, whether at home or at work, that, that I really want to be. And I talked at the beginning of this series that, that I think the world is populated with people who haven't given up, given up on God so much as they've given up on themselves. That sometimes after falling on your face over and over in relationship after relationship, there's this sense of, God, maybe, maybe I'll continue to help you look good by just disassociating myself. And I think it's a failure to understand what Paul is doing here that leads us to that because what Paul is allowing for is, hey, good job, you made the team, but you've got work to do. And part of this pushes against this Western notion that that says, like, this life and the only thing that matters in this life is making sure that you pass through the pearly gates because once you do, there's like this acid wash that you go through and you instantaneously become the character and the person that God wanted for you to be all along. And frankly, it's really hard to support that from the way Jesus taught. Jesus, the implication of what Jesus taught is that the purpose of this life is that you and I are eternal beings of eternal worth and that the point of this life is to develop and put on the character that God has for us so that we can be who God wants us to be in all eternity. And so there's this, I think, this permission to fail. It, it points to a cycle that's not a one-time thing. And so what we're going to do over these next several weeks is there's this somewhat historic, and John Ortberg points it out in his book, Eternity is Now in Session, and there's these kind of four waypoints that can kind of help us capture what, what are the waypoints that actually help us live the with God life? How do we deepen? How do we, what N.T. Wright calls, put on our second nature, which is to say, how, how do we grow in our character? How do we become apprentices? But I think it's important that we think of it not like the board game life, but the board game monopoly. Because right? the board game life is pretty linear. Last time I played it, you get a job once, you get a salary you get a spouse, and everything just moves left to right. You don't revisit things. Think of how that contrasts with Monopoly, where you start at go, and you pass some utilities and some properties, and jail, and then some utilities and some properties, and some railroads, and then boardwalk and park place, and then go, and then you pass some utilities and some properties, and jail, and some railroads, and some utilities, and boardwalk and parkway, park place, and then go, and I don't know how many times in, in a game, you're like, that's why I don't play Monopoly, because you do that cycle like 4,000 times, and by then everybody's done. What if that's what Paul's getting at here? 
And the danger as we talk about these different waypoints is to think they're one-time deals. No, no, they're, they're, they're frequent deals, and they don't even always happen in the same order. And so in the classic sense, the first one is given the title Awakening, and I frankly really struggled with my prep this week, and I think I figured out this weekend, part of why I'm grateful that we're not filming on Fridays is sometimes the stepping away from things on Saturday helps clarify, and I don't, I don't really identify with that word awakening much. I've never like, captured a moment in my life and went like, I had an awakening. Not that there'd be anything wrong with that, but here's what awakening is, I think is what we're referring to here. It's, it's those, what we would call aha moments. Sometimes it's an idea in a book. Sometimes it's a quiet time in your Bible. Sometimes it's a church service or a podcast. Oftentimes, I know for me, more often than not, it's a relationship. Like there's these moments where you meet somebody. Sometimes it's suffering. It's the proverbial fork at the road. And suddenly, like you look back on your life and you go, when I met them, that was an awakening. That, that opened up to me a whole new set of possibilities. Maybe there was a church service. Now, you could think of it like this. What's your favorite fairy tale? And, and I know we often don't think of them, you know, as something that's applicable to someone other than a six-year-old. But if we'll, if we'll just kind of simplify the definition, I, I, sure, Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, those are, those are fairy tales. But, but so is Chronicles of Narnia, and so is Alice in Wonderland, and... I think so is Harry Potter, and so, so is Aladdin. Ortberg points out in his book that, as best we can tell, there's never existed a culture that lacked a fairy tale, some version of fairy tales. And it leads to this question of why would that be? And of course, that's great lunch fodder, perhaps. Some would say that it's because it suggests that uh, this, there's these overlapping worlds, that this other world's not as far away as we, we think. There's this sense of this leads to that. But I think one of, one of them, I, I have to think, is, is the strong parallel, is the sense that like, you can step into a wardrobe, you can open a letter that's deli- been delivered to your house by an owl, you can be kissed by a prince, you can rub a lantern, you can fall in a rabbit hole, and suddenly you can't see life the same way anymore. Suddenly, a whole new realm of possibility is open to you. The text calls that awakening, or at least the the church theologians call that awakening. And the Bible, among other things, is a story of awakening. It's a story of people who have these intersections where they go, whoa, the world is suddenly different. One of those is is in a place called, it's in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 17. And I want to look at that one and then see if we can provoke some conversation around this. So Matthew 17, Jesus, uh, there's this story that Matthew tells about Jesus. It says this, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, what we don't pick up on as non-first century Jewish Eastern thinkers is that in, in the Bible, as much as it's a story about awakenings, it's a story about mountains. Hundreds of stories of significant things that happen with people on mountains. Why? Because in the ancient Near East, a mountain, the top of a mountain, was the closest intersection of heaven and earth. The reason why even the Jerusalem temple was built on top of the highest point of the city at the time was because that's the intersection. And so Jesus' audience, I have to think, or Matthew's audience, I have to think, upon hearing this story, would have already went like, oh, okay, I get it. I recognize the, the, the theme music. That's Star Wars. I know which way we're going here. Something's going to happen. As he was transfigured, he being Jesus... As, and, and, excuse me, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, I think we can probably all agree this is very, very strange. And if, if we leave here thinking, well, awakening for me has to look something like this, then that's probably not setting ourselves up for success. 
Then Peter said, now, before we get into that, poor Peter, he's easy to pick on, he's constantly speaking before he thinks, you maybe can relate, I certainly can. In fact, I had one last weekend, I was hoping to announce some of the baseball games, which turns out is very difficult to do. And the beer selection at the baseball games was horrid. It was Miller Lite and White Claw. And so they kept telling me, hey, announce the beer garden's open, announce the beer garden's open. And I asked permission, like, could I be sarcastic? And I had this whole script, I even had practiced it, which was something like, hey, for those of you that are sick of tap water, you can go to the beer garden, and there's two selections of water, Miller Lite and White Claw. It's flavored water if you want. And, and, And for whatever reason, like, in my head it was funny. I actually chose not to say it. And then every time I walked by the 85-year-old American Legion volunteers who work really hard at those games, especially in the beer garden, I was like, oh my goodness, that would have been horrid. (laughs) But we've all said something we wish we didn't. Peter was famous for it, and part of it was because it was his job, like just like in a meeting, sometimes you just need someone to speak first. That was Peter's role. But six days later, the whole story starts with six days later. What was six days later? Well, six days later was when Jesus and the guys, they're heading for Jerusalem, And there's this point where Jesus starts to explain to them that God's victory would happen from a cross, that he wouldn't be picking up any swords or raising any army. He would be dying, and that would be his victory. And that that was completely foreign. These northern Galilee young men, they knew all too well the horrors of crucifixion. They'd, They'd heard about it. This was a common Roman way of controlling people. And so Peter, and I think we would have all done the same thing, says, no, no, no. And it's more or less like not on my watch. There's some bravado. I will not let that happen to you. And Jesus, emphasizing, and for us what's clear, for them what still wasn't, the importance of the the, the crucifixion says, get behind me, Satan. And so I have to think that Peter spent the last six days going, I can't believe I said that. I'm never announcing again. Like, I can't believe, like, even the fool looks wise when he keeps his mouth shut. Like, we've been there. And then the next time he opens his mouth in Matthew's gospel, here it is. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Mark, the gospel Mark, adds that he didn't know what to say because he was terrified. So he just started talking. And if you read that and you go like, what the heck is he saying? I think that's what the gospel is trying to get us to do. Like, huh? We can break it down a little. Lord, okay, God, you're the boss. That's a good start. It's good for us to be here. That's pretty benign. If you wish. Sounds a little bit like your kingdom come, your will be done. Okay. But here's where I think things start showing some cracks. I, I will make three dwellings. Wait a minute. There's three of you. Is that, is that indicative of some ego? Is Peter like lots of you who all too often step in and take charge of things and control things when that wasn't what was being asked of him? He was just being asked to share an experience. I, and then what's with the three dwellings? Well, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but... Of course, a dwelling is just that. It implies, let's just, let's just pitch a tent and stay here. And the other thing that theologians will point out is that, notice that Peter, he doesn't really see a distinction between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. There, there's this equal footing. But here's the part that I love, and this, uh, we talk about grace in the cross. I think there's grace in this one, because sometimes you just have to interrupt your husband and go like, he doesn't know what he's talking about, let me interrupt here. And like God does that to Peter. Watch this. While he was still speaking, I think that's hilarious. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I'm well pleased. Believe in him. No. Listen to him. 
So here, here's the away, like here, here's this sense of like he's more than you realize. He's more than Moses. He's more than Elijah. And the disciples' response, those three guys, when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. Now, that's uncomfortable to us. Dallas Willard, I heard one time, was asked, if, if God is there, why doesn't he just reveal himself to me so I can believe in him? And his answer, I can't claim to totally understand this, but I respect it. His answer was, because you couldn't handle it. Every time in the text, God just gives a little crack of his actual personhood. People fall on their faces. That's their response. From a Jewish perspective, what's going on here is this is him. This isn't just a prophet. This is him. And then here's how God nuances the way he wants to be understood. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. In verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain. So there it is. There's the awakening. And probably you've never had anything like it. I, 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 I certainly haven't. Never heard loud voices, never heard audible voices, never. But I've had awakenings. I met, a guy, I met a guy named Fred, and at the time I didn't know what that would mean to my life, but in hindsight, it changed the entire course. I, I've, I've had close calls where you just kind of go like, okay, enough. See, awakening, it strikes me, is, is something we have to steward, isn't it? It's a grace, we don't control it, but it's something that we have to lean into. You can meet a person, but then it's on you to pursue the relationship with that person. You can have these interruptions in your life, but it's, it's on you to do with it. See, what stands out to me here, among other things, is Jesus didn't want a dwelling. He wanted them to listen to him. And that involved what? Going down the mountain. I think it's really important to recognize that awakenings aren't really about me and they're not about you. Abraham had one, blessed to be a blessing. Moses had one, he saw a, a burning bush which resulted in this really difficult season of leading people out of slavery to the extent that he died without the job getting done. The disciples had when they were called to, to be followers of Jesus, which ultimately cost them their life. As much as they're there to be stewarded, as much as God wants to you to work out your salvation, I think it's also important to recognize that it's ultimately not about you. And it's not about me. That it's about serving others. And I was in a meeting this week with, with some friends and one of the guys who's super sharp, he, he said, we, we were just talking about this thing that we all talk about all the time, right? And trying to understand the ultra-cautious and the ultra-cynical and just kind of make allowance for the whole thing and make sense of life in this thing. And this friend, he said, you know, what's insidious about these times is that what we're being told to do is nothing. And the implication following that was you can almost never find a time in the text where God's response is do nothing. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that I think it's all a conspiracy. I don't think it means that we should all just willy-nilly go after life. But I do think that, that maybe it's appropriate to begin challenging like the degree to which we're just, if we're not careful, allowing life to become about us. There's all kinds of things that, that can give us a sense of purpose that actually don't move the needle. I, I think the real challenge is whether you're among the ultra-cautious or the ultra-cynical, to find actual practical things to do for others in the midst of that worldview. And to remind ourselves that posting stuff on Facebook doesn't actually change anything. It just feeds a fire that's already burning far too brightly. Like, 
I think we know that the awakening is from God when, when there's a them attached to it. When there's a like, who, who gets served because of that? Who, who, who's the voiceless that suddenly has a representative because of that? Whether, whether you choose to scatter with us or not, that's obviously totally your deal. Whether you choose to be a part of our Sunday gatherings by serving people, that's totally your deal. But my prayer, genuinely, is that in this season, there's, there's still a who attached to your awakening. Because a God who says, it's just me and you living inside these four walls, I, I can't find him in here. And I think there's this prophetic need to begin to challenge some of those dispositions. The other thing that strikes out, stands out to me about awakening is, is it, it's a grace. God does it for us. But we do have a role to play in, in kind of priming the pump. Maybe you're here because you've had an awakening and things seem pretty dry. Maybe you're already thinking about something where God has been prompting you and you're ready to go after it and you're just wishing that I would shut up and pray so that you could strategically think about it. That's fine. Maybe you're here and you're kind of frustrated because you haven't had it, you don't connect with it, or you haven't had it for a very long time. And, and here, I think, is the challenge of you have a role to play. Like that, the, the spiritual disciplines <clears throat> in and of themselves don't make me or you or anybody else any better. Coming to church doesn't make you by default any better. Reading your Bible or praying or having a long conversation with a friend or going for a walk in silence, that doesn't make us better. It puts us in a position to experience something that does. And so I think there's this reminder that part of our role is to, is to show up. I was talking to my friend Fred who meets with more people on a one-on-one -on -one and small group basis than any person I know. It's something like 2,500 people a quarter in Billings. It's not his job, it's just this thing that he does. And he, he said to me this week, he said, Adam, if I'm being honest with you, uh, what I've observed is the darkness is darker than I've ever experienced. I don't lose sleep, but I've lost a lot of it. That the addiction stuff and the parenting stuff, it's bad. And then he said, but what I'm really discouraged about is people seem to have more time on their hands than they've ever had and are less engaged in spiritual disciplines than they've ever been. Now, I'm not saying that to induce shame, but to say part of what we have to do and get to do is show up. <clears throat> One of the more formative things that happened in my life, and you've probably heard me tell this story, was when I was in my early 20s, I was at a creative conference at Willow Creek in Chicago, and this guy who was on their creative production team, his background was in writing theatrical plays, like screenplays. And he was explaining to us that what, the way he learned it in grad school was that if you want to write good stuff, you have to show up at your typewriter. That's kind of funny. You have to show up at your typewriter Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 and just type. And the way it had been taught to him from his instructor was that 80% of the time... At noon, you're going to crumple up what you wrote and throw it in the garbage, and appropriately so, because it's of no use. But every once in a while, maybe once a week if you're lucky, you'll strike something that actually is transformative, that is helpful. But the catch, he said, was, was you can't engineer it so that you only do it when you have the muse. Like the 20% the, the is a direct byproduct of the 80%. I was talking to a friend recently who had a pretty good elk shed hunting season, him and his son. And I think, it was, I think it was 30 miles they hiked before they found a single shed, and then in the next 10 they found four. And he was saying it was a really fun conversation with his son to begin to explain this life discipline. Like what you have to understand is you don't get the four if you don't do the 30. 
and ultimately the 40. This is the way I think about reading my Bible. Four out of five times, there's a lot of things I'd rather be doing. This is the way I think about walking to the office in silence, not on the phone call. Four to five times, there's no aha, there's no spark in the air, there's nothing. But when I show up, every once in a while, once a month or so, I read something, I experience something, and it's transformative. And I think, I think ultimately what we have to remind ourselves, N.T. Wright said it this way, what we need in these present scary and uncertain times is, is transforming and transformed people, which means putting ourselves out before God and saying, God, I'm available if you care to interrupt my life. So I don't know if you can pinpoint an awakening that you, you could work on now, or for you this is just about like getting back to the gym, so to speak, and getting back into the routine and showing up and inviting God to transform you. I hope the good news is that God's invitation is to work out your salvation, which means no matter how good you are or aren't at it, he's in the game with you so long as you want him in the game with you. I'd like to pray, God. Ah, Lord, so many layers and... Uh, different directions that you could take a mind and a heart in an experience like this under music and scattering opportunity and conversation and coffee and message. And so, Lord, we trust that this time is um, of use to you, that what we can do as individuals and a community is like avail ourselves to you and then you do your work in us. I pray for marriages, I pray for homes, I pray for workplaces, I pray for our community, God, that You'd, you'd help us find a way to be really, really engaged with what's happening in our world, and yet, uh, then, that more than just being cynics and more than just being afraid, that you would give us like people with, with a first name and a last so that we could perhaps do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. We love you, God. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.